0: In the book of James, I want you to stand with me. I'm going to read verse 26 and verse 27. That's going to be our focus this morning, though we will be addressing many portions of the first chapter. But let's ask God's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Now, Father, we come to the preaching of the gospel, and we ask for Your blessing, and we ask for enlightenment. Lord, help us to understand correctly and rightly. Help us to discern, Lord, where we are as we look into the matchless, perfect Word of God. Give us ears to hear your voice and give us saving faith where we need it. Give us a faith that is strong and durable, a faith, Lord, that's impervious from being contaminated from the world around us lord give us a desire to follow you wherever you lead and take this word this morning and grow us up make us mature men and women and boys and girls make us mature in our in our christian homes lord that we would honor and glorify you in all that we say and all that we do and believe we pray this in christ's name amen Verse 26, brothers and sisters of James chapter 1. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And thus ends the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. I know you have probably realized this many times over, but James is particularly concerned about true religion, an undefiled religion, a pure faith, if you will. As the pastor of these Hebrews that have now been dispersed throughout the Roman Empire, through political means and hardships that they are facing, James is fully aware of the temptations that that trial brings to a family and to an individual. It's very easy to doubt the goodness of God when things around you is falling apart. Satan knows this. That's why Satan often comes to those in the midst of great difficulty. In the midst of challenges, Satan's there. That that demonic voice that is encouraging the, the one afflicted to question God's goodness. It's that hellish and demonic voice. That speaks to the child in affliction and suffering and says, surely if you were the object of God's love, you wouldn't be suffering like this. Now I could turn to several passages of scripture and teach you this. And I think, I think you all know this. That's exactly what Satan did to our Lord Jesus, did he not? When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights and was terribly hungry and famished, weak. Not only physically weak, but psychologically starting to undergo those terrors that comes to the body, to the human body when it's, when it's been deprived of its nourishment. And Satan comes to challenge the goodness of God and to challenge the Lord Jesus' commitment to his Father's plan. And our Lord Jesus fought off that temptation by declaring that, well, food is fine in and of itself, but That's not what causes man to truly live, but it's the word that comes out of God's mouth. That's where life really is. It's in the word of God. It's in God speaking to you. It's in God showing you himself. That's life. I want you to understand that. Eternal life is this the scriptures says to know you the only true god and Jesus Christ his son that's true religion that's true salvation To know God. And to know someone is to communicate with someone. It's to hear from them. It's to know them by the things that they reveal about themselves. That's true religion. James is very much concerned with with a faith that now has been challenged and found lacking of true roots and substance. A religion that's spurious and not genuine. It's possible that James has heard of some some consider some considering defection from the faith, going back to their Judaism and going back to the old ceremonial law, uh, the things that they for, were familiar with, the things that they knew and grew up with, and possibly defecting from christ and james writes this book and he writes it in order to help god's people find joy and comfort in knowing god and walking with him and yes that means even when times are hard and difficult and and uh, you know um we don't want them we don't like hard times we don't like affliction we don't like circumstances that challenge us. We don't, we don't like those things. These, those things that bring us out of our comfort zones, right? That's always been the case. That's the case here. And yet this is where James is going with it. It's not that James is unlovingly, you know, in some way, um, beating down these believers. But he's saying, listen, if you have these things, If you have these responses to God's providence, if you're challenging God's goodness, if you're blaming God for your sin, if you've become bitter with the rich man because you have nothing, or if you're a rich Christian and you've become arrogant toward your uh, uh, brother who, who has way less than you do, and James says, I want you to consider your faith. I want you to consider where you are. I want you to consider whether or not you have deceived yourself. Now, I did not have the opportunity to go back and and redo last week's sermon. The recording failed. But I I do plan to do that. And I'm not going to go over all of that this morning. But what I want to do this morning is is hit these last two verses of chapter 1 and then bring out some of the things that i believe james is highlighting here and these are the things that he has mentioned throughout chapter 1 something that he has stated over and over but in a different way each time the first thing that i want to point out as we look at verse 26 is notice what james says in the opening up of this uh, of this thought he says if anyone thinks himself to Be religious. There is a picture that the original language draws for us in these words. And that is, it's this idea that no one else sees the person as they do themselves. If anyone thinks of himself to be religious, it's not what others are saying about him It's what he thinks of himself. He thinks he is a religious person. This is a conclusion that this person has come to in and of himself. Now this fits the context of what James has already talked about up in verse 19 and following. He's given several examples of what would be a spurious faith. And he talks about where we approach God... And someone who's not willing to listen to the word of God. That's why he says, be quick to hear. That's what faith does. Faith wants to hear from the God who is the object of that faith. Saving faith has an object. The object of true, living, saving faith is the God of glory in His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the object of saving faith. There is a, listen, to put it romantically, there's a love affair between saving faith in God. There's a desire for God. There's a wanting and a longing for God. It's as simple as the attraction that a boy has for a girl and a girl for a boy. Or a man and a woman. It's natural it's common, it's acceptable, it's 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 something that is normal or at least it should be. And yet that's exactly the way saving faith works. Saving faith has an object. The object is God, is God. And His Son, Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said, listen, if you love me, you love my Father. If you believe in me, then you also believe in my Father who sent me. What Jesus was teaching us there in the Gospels is that you can't have a Savior without the Father of the Savior. You can't make up your own religion To embrace Christ is to embrace the Father, and to embrace the Father is to embrace His Son, Jesus Christ. James is wanting us to realize that this person is the, the sort of the object of self deception. Notice if you go back up into the context and you always read the word in context, you always read what it says before and after, making sure you understand what is being said here. And notice it's not just that faith is the, it responds, it wants to hear God, but it also, look at verse 21, um, Or look at verse 23. Let me address the analogy there. It says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and a doer, that's that's the thing that James is emphasizing. Saving faith has an object, and that is God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But it also has an outworking. It also has a work, a doer. James is emphasizing this throughout the, the, the epistle. He says, Like a man that looks at his natural face in the mirror. For once he has looked at himself. Now notice what he says, he looks. Now the idea there is one who looks intently, studiously. Now I want you to understand, he's not one who who gives a glance at the mirror and walks away. No, the idea there in the original language is this person goes and looks into the Word of God and studies it. But there's a problem with his mode of study it just fills his head he just fills his head he doesn't feel his heart and he walks away from the word after studying it intently that's the idea of the original language he looks at the mirror intently now there is something that i thought was was um telling is that james emphasizes in that illustration um that it is a man looking into the mirror. And I think James is playing on the, the gender here of man versus woman. Men are not typically one who stare in mirrors. Men are not typically the ones who are staring and gazing at, at long periods of time into the mirror. Who, who are the, out of the two who normally do that? Women. And that was true in James' day. So James here is saying, here's a man who comes, it's unnatural, but he's looking intently at the mirror, at his own natural reflection, in order that he might study who he is. That's what the Word of God does. The Word of God shows us who we really are. And the Word of God doesn't just do that outwardly, but it addresses the inward man as well as the outward man man. He looks at his face in the mirror in verse 24. Once he has looked at himself and gone away, he immediately has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Now James is contrasting that with with a spurious faith. This is someone who believes in God outwardly, ceremonially, in in, in a formal way, he has all the formality of worship. He has all the formality of devotion. He looks at the Word of God intently. He studies it. He knows it. He can quote it. He can use it. Whenever he desires, he can pull it out and discard it or, or, or distribute it, it is as if he owns this truth. But James says there's a problem with this person. This problem is that he fills his head, but never, ever fills his heart. Never. And he forgets because he walks away and he doesn't apply it to himself. When James uses that term, he forgets what he sees, you know what James is saying? James is saying he doesn't apply the Word of God to his life. That's another way of saying it. So if we're guilty of hearing the Word of God preached and not responding in obedience, which is what faith does, then we're forgetful hearers. James says that's the person that forgets what he saw. It's the person that forgets what God showed them about themselves. It's clear the illustration. Notice how James puts it in such a personal way. In verse 24, he says, "He looks at himself. And then at the end of it, he immediately forgotten what kind of person he was." It's personal. You see, the Word of God, brothers and sisters, as we know, is living and active, sharper than a two edged sword, able to divide between bone and marrow, soul and spirit, right? It cuts us to the very core of our being. It fillets our, it does not only like a knife fillet meat and flesh and separate bone from joint like a knife, but the Word of God is so sharp it separates soul and spirit. It, 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 here's what that means it means that it 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 cuts you to the very person you are it gets to the core of who you and who I am that's why the word of God is called living and active that's why the word of God is truly called the effectual word that's what James talks about here notice what he talks about Again, notice how he puts this. He says, verse 25, but the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Blessed in what he does. So when the man comes in contact, the man or the woman, the family, the church comes in contact with the Word of God, and they have the the intention of applying it to their lives, to seeing that Word worked out in their lives, that's called obedience. And then to bring glory to God, James says, that's the person that's blessed. Now, nowhere can you read this, and it says, he... This person has earned that blessing. He says, no. What's the outflow? What's the outcome of that person's faith and obedience? Blessedness. It's blessed. The work of his hands are blessed. His relationships are blessed. He he causes people to walk in favor with them. Why? Because God's blessing them. James wants us to realize, I mean, he wants us in a very practical, real, gritty sense, if you will. He wants us to know what real and true religion is over that spurious, fake religion. Verse 26 again, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, that is, if that person has come to the conclusion that I am a religious person and yet does not bridle his tongue... He deceives his own heart now what James is saying here if a person thinks he is religious because he knows a lot of things he's memorized a lot of scripture he's he's even gone through the catechisms but that has never translated into how they live this is what James is saying and he does this by speaking of the tongue. He says, if it has not translated into affecting the way you speak, and how you talk, how you carry yourself, you have deceived yourself. That's not the word of God. That's not the living and active word of God. That's not the effectual word. That's not saving faith who has an object to bring glory to God and love to him and love your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting. I mean, turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs 14. Certainly, I want you to put your own eyes on this. Proverbs 14. Verse 12. There is a way which seems right to a man. What does the Bible say about that? But its end... Is the way of death. There is a way that seems right to man. Now that's in, that's that's something that James is addressing here. That's exactly the what James has in mind when he says, "Here's a man that considers himself to be religious. He has all the outward formality of any religious person." And now, now let me say this: religion isn't bad. It's actually a very good thing. We ought to be religious people but we have to make sure that our religion not only fills our head, but affects our heart and guides our feet and addresses our tongues. I like what um, Matthew Henry Said, he said, you know, when it comes to vain religion, I'm paraphrasing him here. He says, when it comes to vain religion, recognize that vain religion has a lot of window dressing. It looks right. You know, how in the world would you ever pick out anyone that comes to church, sings the hymns, puts a check in the plate? I mean, shakes hands, pats back, hugs necks, participates in, in those outward formalities. And yet never, ever, from a heart perspective, loves God with all of his heart because he's been deceived. There's deception going on. And it's not a good thing to be deceived, is it? That's a terrible thing. I mean, when you think about being deceived and you think about how you feel when others deceive you. Think about deceiving yourself. No one likes to be deceived. No one wants to be lied to. No one wants to be misled. No one takes any pleasure or comfort in being deceived. And yet, James is saying, who has deceived you? You have deceived you. You recognize the formality? You're religious. You recognize that you have all of the outward pomp, the pageantry, the ceremony. All of the formalism, which is not bad, but that's all you have. That's what James is saying. That's all you have. It's never touched your heart. How do we know it's never touched the heart? Because James says right there in the verse, and yet does not bridle his tongue. What does his tongue have to do with the heart? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 15, Mark 9. He said, listen, it's not what goes into the body that defiles it, but what comes out of the body. And what comes out of the body? Words. Thoughts. How are thoughts revealed? Through speech. How do do you reveal you don't like somebody? Hmm? In your heart, when you hate somebody, how do you reveal it? How do you reveal it? In your heart, when you long for something that God says you can't have, how do you reveal it? See, what James is doing, yes, I believe James is classifying a certain class of sins. Yeah, those things we say, but he's also dealing with the heart itself. The heart that... that, Is not truly been purified or cleansed by the Word of God, the blood of Christ. Vain religion has a lot of window dressings. Only true religion can bring that inward joy and love for the truth and for the one true God. Now this is a very deceptive thing because... There is formality in our faith, right? We read the Word of God. We memorize it. We study it. That's formality. That's ceremonial in one sense of it, isn't it not? Aren't we gather this morning, we are giving ourselves in ceremony to God. We are coming to pray. We're coming to sing. And yet, if we trust in those things alone, we have deceived ourselves. God doesn't want you to trust in the means of grace. He wants you to trust in Him who has given you the means of grace. Now, when I read, when I you know read one nineteen eight through sixteen, remember what He says. No, I don't trust in I don't trust in anything but You and Your Word. And um, I read from the Psalm and the call to worship, He says, no, "Don't put your trust in princes. Don't trust men." That's one, of the, the, that's one of the bad things about following men and teachers. You know, remember Paul had to correct all that. You know, oh, I know you say you're of Apollos and you're of Peter and I'm of Paul. He said, I don't want any of that. Don't, 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 don't say anything like that to me. You're not followers of me because if you are a true follower of me, you will be a follower of Christ. It's not about winning people to some ministry. It's about winning people to Jesus. It's about following Christ. It's about teaching the word as he has given that word in the context that he's given that word. It's about the commandments that he's given to the church and not the commandments of men or man or men or any group of men. And uh, Matthew Henry says all of this can be very, very deceptive. Now, because it is so deceptive, what does it require of us? Diligence; those things that are so close to to reality are the things we must be the most careful of. Right? And I mean, is that right, folks? Y'all asleep That's right. When it's when 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 that which is fake is so close to what is real, it requires a greater sense of caution. A greater sense of discernment. A greater sense of study. You know what? A, a, A more cautious, judicious, practical way of saying, okay, am I this or am I this? Let me ask you this. Whatever path you're on spiritually, where is it going to take you if you follow it out? Whatever path you're on spiritually, right now, Don't think of where you want to be or where you should be. That's a a mistake we make. Because when we ask those questions, we say, well, I know what's best. When we take the Lord's Supper, how often have we taken the Lord's Supper and we say, well, I know what I need to be. But I want to ask you a question. Where are you now? And where are you now? And if you continue on the path that you are on right now, where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? That's what James is dealing with. The one who deceives himself. Notice what he says in verse 26. He says, "The one who deceives himself, this man's religion is what? Worthless. What does it mean to have a worthless religion? Well, it's not religion itself that's bad. That's not what he, James says. James says, his religion. It's not religion. It's his practice of it. How often, listen to me. Mm, there's an expression we often use. It's called throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And, and, and that expression is often used when you go too far. You know, when you, when you make, there are changes that need to be made, but to throw the baby out with the bathwater is you make, you go to another extreme. Oftentimes when there's difficulty, when we are put in an uncomfortable, difficult, suffering, when hey, listen, what are you supposed to do when, you, when, when God brings agitation in your life? Agitate. When God brings suffering and affliction into your life, what are you supposed to do? Suffer. When He brings challenges into your life, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to be challenged. Now, God's good at it. We're not to buck the God of all wisdom and sovereignty. But we are to express a living living faith put it into practice, take the means of grace, implement it into our lives so that we walk through that agitation and that suffering and that difficulty in a way that brings glory to God and maturity to myself. And guess what? If you can watch your brother or sister agitate and suffer in a faithful manner, it will edify you as well. You're supposed to suffer when God brings suffering. But what we don't want to do, listen. And this is where I was going. We don't cast out everything we believe. You don't throw out everything you believe because you're suffering. Because that's not how you suffer. You don't suffer by challenging all of those things that are true. What's the the object of the suffering is the maturity of the sufferer The maturity, the perfection, what does James call it? The completeness of the one being agitated, the one who is agitating, the one who is suffering. It's the one of the afflicted. They are not to cast out everything they believe. Well, I thought God was a good God. I thought if He loved me, He would bring every good thing into my life. What is all of this going on? I don't understand it. I don't like it. My family is suffering. My wife and husband are mad at me. We're arguing all the time. This has been nothing but hell, hell, hell. I don't want anything to do with it. And they start throwing the baby out with the bathwater. That's exactly what you don't want to do. You have to look at yourself in the mirror. You have to consider your religion. Are you religious? Are you a man and woman of faith? Are you a teenager of faith? Are you a young college student of faith? Where are you? When you look... At your situation. And you govern it. That situation. Do you govern the situation by Oprah? No. Do you govern your situation in certain circumstances by Dr. Phil? Jerry Springer? All of the, the, the rank and defiling commercials that are on TV. Do you judge your happiness and success and all of that by that? I hope not. Because if that is the case then you have no saving faith because james says we govern it by what the perfect law of liberty the effectual word god's word the word of truth that's what he calls it the word of truth And once we come to this word of liberty, why? Because it is in its, in this context, in this, that we are set free. Set free from what? Set free from our own devices. Set free from our own deception. Set free. Now, again, this is the idea here. This, this, it's almost a mathematical term. It is, how did this person deceive himself? Well, he didn't do the math right. That's, that's the idea. He didn't do the math right. Guess what? He, he, he argued poorly and wrongly and came to the wrong conclusions. He practiced poor logic. If I can just give up these things, I'll be happy and my suffering will be less. If I can, you know, if I can just have these things, I can be happy. It's like saying 2 plus 2 is 5. Now, you made a mistake. But where does that conclusion lead you? Not to the truth. It's never going to lead you to the truth. I don't care who you tell 2 plus 2 is 5 to, you're never going to be right. Never, ever going to be right. It's never going to be right. That's the idea that James is saying. This person is never going to be right as long as he continues to reason illogically. As long as he continues to reason from the world's perspective, as long as he continues to adopt all of these worldly ideas and philosophies, this contaminates and contaminates his own religion. Guess what? He's always going to be deceived and wrong. Always. It's never going to change. Never going to change. You don't correct your own deception with the world. Not well, with those who seem to be the wisest, because who's the wisest person—the one who makes the greatest happiness their practice—and who's the, who's the happiest man—the blessed man who walks with God, who obeys Him. That's the one. Now we've heard this over and over, haven't we? So he says, look, this man's religion is worthless. What does it mean to be worthless? It's vain. It's empty. It has no substance to us. What does it mean when we talk about it doesn't have any substance to us? It doesn't bear fruit. It's not a, it's not a fruit-bearing religion. It's not a fruit-bearing faith. If you notice, let's go to, to, uh, quickly to Matthew 13. I'm not going to be able, I'm not going to address all of it. Um, All that he says here. Look at verse 18. Now he deals with the the parable of the sower. And I think this is, I think James may actually have this in mind as he's writing these words. And Jesus has already given a parable to uh, those around him and the disciples have come to Jesus and they're questioning, well, I, you know, Lord, what does this mean? You know, you made some people angry by this parable. And here's what Jesus says. He says in verse 18, He says, Here then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. And this is the one whom the seed has was sown beside the road then the one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places this is the man that hears the word and immediately receives it with joy and he has no firm root in himself but only temporary and when affliction or persecution arises because of the word immediately he falls away and on and then the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns this is the man that hears the word and the worry of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. That's the idea there, vanity. And the one on whom the seed is sown in good soil, this is the man that hears the word, understands it, indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30. Now notice one thing, the fruit aspect of it brings forth foods, brings forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. Guess what? Not everybody is as fruitful as others, but every Christian is fruitful. We're not all going to be equal in how we live the Christian life, but we are all going to be able by faith to live the true Christian life. Some are going to bear a lot of fruit. Praise God. We benefit from those people. I study men all the time that I believe are in that hundredfold category. And some of us are only going to be 60. Some of us are going to be 30. But guess what? You're a fruit bearer. And a fruit bearer is a true follower of Christ because they hear the word and they put the word into practice. And they bear fruit. That's the opposite of what James is dealing with back over in James when he talks about this, this vanity, this, this religion is worthless. That's what he means. There's no fruit in his life. There's no true fruit of the Word of God. They don't discipline their tongue. They don't discipline their, their minds. Okay? They're not disciplined in the sense of bringing uh, glory to God and and true spiritual maturity. One other thing I want to deal with here is the the idea of growth and maturity. James is writing and he's talking about the the person, the, the man or the woman, becoming a hearer and a doer of the Word of God. Now brothers and sisters, this is what that means for us here this morning. You have an opportunity this morning to hear a sermon like this and to do what? Put into practice a new plan. to do what? To be more fruitful, or to be fruitful. I, here I want to go back to my question. If you stay on the, on the, if you stay on the path that you're on right now, where are you going to be? Where's it going to take you? It's going to take you somewhere. Every path leads somewhere. Not where you think you want to be. Not where you know you should be. But where you are right now. Where is it going to take you? Are you bearing fruit? Are you bearing fruit? If not, you need to ask yourself some questions, don't you? Am I deceived? Is it just in my head? Is my religion... Fruitless. Worthless. Now, the other thing, brothers and sisters, you need to think about is when we talk about a worthless worthless faith, is when you stand before God on Judgment Day, what's going to be the fruit of a a fake faith, a fake religion? Lord, Lord. Lord. Did we not do all of these things in your name, cast out demons, worship you? Did we not just do all of these ceremonial things? Now, I think they deceived themselves. I don't think they did any of those things. I think they had deceived themselves. And Jesus says, I don't know you. And I don't know you because you did not keep my Father's commandments. Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 7, he says, The one who hears my word and does them is like a man that builds his house on the rock. What happens to the man that builds his house on the sand? The man that builds his house on the sand, right? What happens when the rains come and the storms come? What happens when that storm season comes and those riverbeds where things are dried up and now begins to fill up with water and somebody's built their house right there in those riverbeds? What happens? It's washed away. But the one who hears the Word of God and practices it is like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. See, when the rains come... When that season of life comes, when that storm comes, guess what? The house stands. Verse 27, James again emphasizes what we've already heard many times over. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. A couple things. What's pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God? Well, it's the faith that that he's handed down to us. Pure and undefiled religion is the word of God as he has handed it down to us. Let me put it to you another way. It's like this. Don't add to or take away anything that I've told you. Don't add to it. Don't pollute the word of God by adding to the word of God your inventions. Don't pollute the word of God by taking out things you don't like. Don't pollute it. Don't don't defile it by putting your human hands on it and making a a, a God-ordained heavenly religion into something that's been changed, well, from a man who does what? Who seemeth right in his own eyes, but the ends are what? Ways of death. Man-made religions are ways of death. The more man tinkers with, it takes away and adds to the word of God, the easier it is for we to be deceived. But James says that undefiled, pure religion, undefiled religion in the sight of God is two things. Number one, it's compassion. Compassion. Visit orphans and widows in their distress. That's compassion. It's love. Charity. Charity. It's Godlikeness. To be to be a Christian is to be Godlike. Why? Because God says, I am a father to the fatherless. I am a husband to the husbandless. I come to defend them who can't defend themselves. When you touch. Those who are of the most pitiful class to use them, to abuse them, to make fun of them, and to treat them in any way that is unbecoming of an image of a a bearer of the image of God, then I will plead their case and come and take up their cause. What James is saying, when he makes this comment, now he's not saying if you're not visiting orphans and widows in their distress, you're not a Christian. He's using this as a class. He goes, yes, you should. Be compassionate to any of those you have that you can reach out and touch. Who's next to you that needs your compassion and love and charity? Who's next to you? Who's helpless that you need to reach out and touch? Defend. Support. Help. Who? Who? Who in your life needs your compassion? Brothers and sisters, you are never more like Christ. You and I are never more like Christ, more like God. When we come to the aid of the helpless. That's when you are more godly. Listen, why? And why do you do it? Because the word of God teaches us to do it. The word of God shows us to do it. The word of God shows us that God does it. When God sent his son into this world, did he not come to save helpless sinners? Sinners who could not save themselves, sinners that did not have the strength to say, hey, sinners that did not want to be saved. And our God sent his son into the world because he pitied us. We have been the objects of God's pity and mercy and compassion. Hey, how many, hey, Have we gotten what we deserve? We have not. First, brothers and sisters, we need to learn how to guard our tongue. James is going to deal with this later in a couple of chapters. He's going to hit this harder. Guard our tongues. I think there is a connection here to compassion and charity. I think James makes a connection in verse 26 and 27. Not only does the the one who's deceived himself, not only is he the one that's not helping uh, the distressed orphan and widow, but he's probably the one stands in judgment over. Probably the one that stands in judgment, critical, criticizing. James says that's not true religion. That doesn't honor God. That's not acceptable in the sight of our God. Pure and undefiled religion. Religion that's not been contaminated and polluted. And brothers and sisters, I'm not even going through those scriptures and saying, okay, here's how we ought to help the orphan. Here's how we ought to help the widow. That's certainly a study worthy in and of itself. And we should do that. So we know how to help those who are truly the objects of of charity. Right? Not everybody's the object of charity. It's, that's reality that's what love is not not something with boundaries love has boundaries it's not simply just the raw uh, uh uh ungoverned emotion right no to visit orphans and widows in their distress I'm going to be compassionate of those. I'm going to say something. That's why I praise the Lord for the heart that God has given Mitch for this abortion work. We don't have a lot of orphans and widows around us. But there are probably some young people that need fathers, right? Guidance. Guidance. There's probably some young men and women out there that need a father figure, mother figure. If Christians can't do it, who's going to do it? God did it with us, did he? Not? There is not a more helpless class of people than the unborn child. There's not. And we kill them about 3,000 a day on average. 3,000 a day in this nation are murdered. And we have become, let's just be, let's be frank, we've become numb to it. We don't even think about it anymore. When our hearts ought to be torn to pieces of the thought that a mother is given a right to murder her own child lawfully. God have mercy on us. Because that's not compassion. If we are to be compassionate and visit orphans who are born into this world with no parent, how much more are we ought to come to the aid of the child, the unborn child, whose who's parent's trying to kill them? So visit orphans and widows. I mean, people do need help. Notice in their distress, the emphasis. There are times when we need help. There are times when we are distressed. And all the difference in the world is somebody that loves you. But how great that love and compassion coming from a Christian That can bring them the gospel, the word of truth, the law of liberty, and set them free from their own sins. Last thing, brothers and sisters, and we'll close. Mm, Time gotten away from us, hasn't it? Keep oneself unstained by the world. Now, the word there, undefiled and unstained, are two different Greek words. They're in verse 27. The undefiled religion is a different idea than the one that's unstained. This, this unstained means that, that is the idea of this moral purity, ethical purity, righteousness. That is, the Lord Jesus came to, to cleanse us of our sins to empower us to live a life of righteousness by his name and through the spirit of god that's this this unstained by the world that is but when we look to the world for our pleasures when we, I, I, We're not talking about enjoyment of creation. We're talking about when we adopt the philosophies of this world, what their definition of fun is, what their definition of truth is, what their definition of anything is, then we have defiled ourselves with this world and we're no longer unstained by it. We're stained by it. We're blemished by it. How do you? What do you do when you become stained by the world? You wash yourself with the Word of God, because the Word of God is the only thing that can wash away those stains. James is going to deal with what it means to love the world in chapter four, and let me just go on and give you a, a heads up. What he says is, it's impossible to be a lover of the world and a lover of God. Don't trust in men. Don't trust in princes. Trust in God. He's your savior, your husband, your father, your lover. He's eternal life. Examine yourself today. See if you be in the faith. See if your faith is real and fruitful. If it's not, you know what to do about it? Turn to Christ. He'll forgive you. He'll cleanse you. He'll save you he'll give you a heart for the word of god he'll give you a heart for god he'll give you a heart for the the unlovely the distressed widow and orphan he'll give you a compassion and a charity for those in need he'll do all that because that's what he does he takes the unlovely and makes them lovely he takes the down and out and sets them upon the rock he takes the sinful and makes them pure he takes those worthy of hell And fashions them for heaven. That's our God. Let's pray.